welcome to another episode of Drill to Detail, the podcast series about the new world of big data analytics, and I'm your host, Mark Whitman. So today I'm pleased to be joined by someone I've heard speak at several events in the past, being interviewed by one of our other guests from the past, uh, Daniel Mintz from Looker. So I'm very pleased to be joined by none other than Jonathan Palmer from King Games, uh, who's a fellow Brit and uh, also probably was interested to see that uh, England have gone further now than uh, Germany in the World Cup. And uh, yeah, it's a good day today. Indeed it is, yes. Happy days and <laughs> commiserations to your German listeners. <laughs> so, so Jonathan, tell us a bit about um, the role you do at King Games and how you ended up there. So what was your kind of route into the industry and to working at King Games? Sure. So... Um... Uh, I guess my career has taken on a number of forms over the years, but I originally started out as a, a data-focused software engineer uh, many years ago now, too, too many to mention. Um, and then uh, that's led more and more into the BI space. And so prior to joining King, um, I was working as a sort of business uh, systems manager and BI analyst kind of combined role um, for a small intellectual property attorneys. Um, but I was quite keen to test myself with bigger uh, challenges and also keen to get into a more um, youthful and 21st <laughs> century technical challenge as well. Um, then, so, uh, yeah, and that took me into King, which was uh, as a BI developer, first and foremost. Um, and then having been there for five years, I've sort of, uh, now found myself as a director of Core Data Services there and it's been a great journey yeah it's interesting so you came in originally as a bi developer what sort of tools were you using then what kind of things were you doing when you went in there first of all um ostensibly my the main responsibilities was was to knock out click view reports um in in those early days i, I mean i would i joined during the the explosion of our you know king's most well-known game which is the original candy crush game um so really uh building data products um, and building reporting for a business that was pretty much changing overnight. So going from um, thousands of players to hundreds of millions of players uh, and dealing with the data challenges that come with that. So it was a, it was a really challenging time, a really interesting time. Um, but, you know, on the face of it, it was still quite a traditional approach to BI, which was, you know, uh, somebody raises a request and says, I would like to be able to uh, see a, a dashboard, a report about this topic, and off you go, build uh, some sort of transformation and, and aggregation, and then present that in ClickView. Okay, okay. So what was, so when you went and joined there, and you said it was a more youthful kind of environment, and it was a more 21st century, and I've, I've worked in kind of gaming places, I think, in the past as well. Uh, I mean, tell us, I suppose, what was different about King and, and the, vol I suppose, in the way, the way they kind of develop products and they develop games, it's, it's very data driven, isn't it? I mean, what's, what's the typical process around how a product is built there really at, at, at King? Okay, so um, yeah, it's, it, it, you're absolutely right to say it's very data driven. Um, you know, it, the idea with King is that games start small uh, with very uh, small teams of developers uh, and artists, and um, you know, the risk level for investment is is pretty low. So you're looking to prototype relatively quickly and get a game out into uh, sort of play testing. Um, in order to then start to be able to gather some of the data points you need to see whether the, the game is ultimately going to be a success or to see if it, further iterations are required to, um, to drive it in, uh, in the direction you want it to go. 
Um, so that's that's really uh, the first stage that data enters the equation is is when those first play tests occur, uh, when the game is usually relatively limited in its feature set and being released to a very small market, um, you know, a few thousand users uh, in uh, you know in the Philippines, for example. Um, and at that point, there are no monetization features through. Uh, um, so all you're looking at is how are players starting to play the game? How engaged are they? Um, how is the overall sort of funnel across the first time user experience? What's that looking like? And then the, the, the game iterates and expands and improves from there to the point where you're in a position to either make you know, the call to invest in it um, as a, you know, a long-term hit or, or to say, okay, let's move on to the, the next experiment. Okay. Okay. So you mentioned experiments there. So do you do a lot of, I suppose you do a lot of AB testing or a lot of kind of testing in general to sort of see what's the best approach to take and, and so on. I mean, is that, is testing and stats and so on a big part of what you do there? Uh, massively so. So at any given time, I would say at King over the last, um, say three to four years, there's been anywhere between 80 and 100 data scientists employed and they're the Chief, the majority of those are embedded in the game studios themselves. So as you say, they're doing a lot of A-B testing. They're doing a lot of predictive modeling around what the, uh, you know, the customer lifetime value of the, of the, the players look like, um, what features resonating more, how you present certain options within the game to see which you know, uh, get people motivated to continue playing versus those things which uh, turn players off. Yeah, definitely. I mean, so, so I mean, again, working in that kind of industry in the startup world, I was surprised at how, I suppose, how mathematical and how numerate and how kind of, I suppose, uh, stats aware the teams are there. Is, is it the case that generally, you know, from product managers or business managers all the way down, you know, people are very, I suppose, KPI aware and, and numerically aware in these kind of businesses? I mean, particularly at King. Uh, absolutely. So it, it surprised me as well, having worked in, in more traditional businesses, um, you know, I, I, I expected people's data literacy particularly to be poor. You know, they're more passive consumers of data, um, you know, often in the form of an Excel spreadsheet and so on. Um, but at King, it's, it's very much the other way around. Uh, as you say, those product managers are they're highly numerate, highly data focused. Um, and you know, many of them are as are, have come through the pathway of being data scientists or data analysts in the path. In the past, so they're looking to, um, you know, if if they have bandwidth, they're able to dive in uh, on the tech level of the tools. They're able to write their own SQL, for example. Um, but obviously, once you uh, actually task with managing the product yourself, you want to be doing that less, and you want to be using more um, the traditional BI suites and so on, and you want to be delegating lots more to the analysts and data scientists to come up with the deep level insights. Yeah, yeah. So you said when you went there, you you used uh, ClickView, uh, and um, I mean, how how did that? How well did that work as a as a as a BI tool in that kind of environment? I mean, it's obviously from the world I came from, it's quite a, it's seen as quite an agile and quite a dynamic and easy to use tool. But I can imagine the analysts in a in a games company would think it's quite constricting. And what was the? How, how did that work for you, really? There. Um, yeah, you're absolutely right. I think uh, in a in a sort of fully centralized. BI function as we had then, um, we felt we were doing a pretty good job. And uh, it was interesting, uh, the, the journey to sort of realizing that there were definite sort of categories of, of, of users and other data focused people in the, in, the, in the business who were gradually moving away from those tools and gradually becoming less and less engaged. You know, there was certainly a point where as it, 
the ability, you know, the in-memory uh, exploration element of, of ClickView worked very well. And there, there are, I guess, um, certain key use cases, you know, for example, the, the, the centralized macro level KPI dashboard for the business that still pr fit pretty well within uh, a, a ClickView stack and uh, where people are still comfortable um, with using that. But as you say, the, the more data literate the individual, I think the less inclined they were to use it over time as, as their needs became much harder to, uh, you know, the business became more fluid, more experimental, um, the velocity increased. It became very hard, both from a tooling perspective and from an organization perspective to sort of support that velocity from a centralized BI perspective. So that sort of traditional story of, uh, you know, here comes a requirement for either an, uh, an adjustment to an existing ClickView asset or a request for a new report. Um, you know, you, you wait till that gets to the top of the backlog. The team goes off. They build the pipeline for that. Eventually, release it out into the wild. Do some testing um, and iterate on that product. That 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 became extremely slow, uh, prohibitively slow. And as a result, we had to consider other options, and that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. I guess that probably was less of a function, a free, less of a, of a restriction of say ClickView, and more about. Um, the way that um, probably you know you and I used to do BI before, which was you know you would aggregate data, you would get averages, you'd get kind of you know, do various kind of uh, aggregations on that data. Whereas uh, the thing that struck me working at Qubit, for example, is how you know the nature of the event level data, which is this person did this thing and they're intended to do that thing. Um, and, and following that through there, it's, it's quite different to the kind of analysis that we used to do with tools like ClickView. And it was actually Yali Sassoon from Snow, Snowplow that, that, that kind of made that point a couple of episodes ago. And it, it struck home, it really resonated with me that that, that nature of event-based data and the analysis you do is very different to the sort of thing you do with just simple aggregation tools. Yeah, that's very true. And, and I think the other side of that is the, the sheer volumes that you're talking about, you know, um, in order to make something performant within uh, an in-memory tool, you, you have to pre-aggregate. And when you're doing that, you're making some prescriptive decisions um, about what is a, is a reasonable grain um, to present to the user that it does not necessarily reflect the, the meaningful grain that that user needs to explore too. Um, especially with very sort of wide data, you know, traditionally at King, um, you're looking at sort of uh, retention curves and um, and RPI curves, revenue per install curves, and you're looking, you can be looking, you know, the first sort of 30 days are the most interesting part of that curve, but the first sort of 270 days can actually tell you a huge amount as well, and so understanding. Uh, every point across 270 days, for example, but doing that by multiple cohort combinations results in this sort of explosion uh, of granularity uh, that actually the average user is interested in a very thin slice across that. Um, but in order to enable the user to choose their own thin slice, you have to protect, create something that's prohibitively large. Um, and I think that's where more... Uh, the sort of tooling available these days gives you far more flexibility around that. Okay, so that's obviously why I heard, from, heard that's why I heard about you with, from Looker. So you implemented Looker at King. So what was, I think you've led into that now a little bit, but what was the kind of rationale behind that? And what was the problem that Looker was going to solve for you there, really, that, that the capability it gave you didn't have before? 
It was a it was a number of things re- really. As as a that that's a retention curve and RPI curve is is, is a perfect example of where we we don't want to pre-aggregate. We don't want to um, we don't want to define too tightly the, the the possibilities of exploration that are available to a user. What we want to do is is orchestrate the the the, the arena of truth. That sounds like mm. a grand term. <laughs> uh, but, it, uh, <laughs> it does indeed. Mm. Um, so, uh, and then there's the other factor in our Looker implementation, certainly, which is is to think about uh, data tooling in this sort of decentralized world. So where two studios, are ultimately at a macro level, they're reporting on the same KPIs um, and one game is compared to another at the, at the very tallest level. But in terms of individual game features, uh, a saga-based game, you know, a traditional level-by-level game, um, a match-three game like Candy Crush is extremely different to a resource management game um, where the concept of a level, for example, doesn't really exist. Uh, so being able to provide uh, data analytics infrastructure that enables those things to stay as unified as possible up until the point that they truly diverge and then have equal value where they diverge and you can then hand over the keys to the to the data literate people in in that um, in those game studios was a really key thing for us with Looker um, because we weren't able to achieve that with other combinations of tools. We either had to lock everything down to keep the macro right or we had to let go of everything in order to get that decentralized aspect right. Okay. Okay. So for anyone listening to the show who doesn't know Looker, just tell us, maybe just paint a picture really of what the kind of Looker setup you've got is there. So you've got obviously a Looker model, you've got a data source and so on, but you know, do you have, do you have a sort of single model for all kind of games? Do you, as you say, you know, do they vary a little bit? How, how is it kind of architected really? So I think um, the key architectural decision we made uh, with Looker is, is to take this idea of a single model um, and then uh put it into this hub and spoke um, approach. So the idea is, is that, you know, I, I guess traditionally you would have uh, in a, a, a single model for, you know, sales funnels, for example, a single model for revenue recognition. Um, uh, what we've done is we've created a, a sort of core KPI model uh, that is keyed um, at the, uh, essentially the sort of device or player grain, if you like. Um, and then we we literally lift and shift that uh, that model defined in mm-hmm. the LookML um, mm-hmm. to satellite Git repos, okay. um, and that enables people then to use the extends feature within Looker. So mm-hmm. they're able to take that code, use it as a base, and then extend it and add their own kind of contextual ri- richness to it. And they're able to do that on an event level because those events are also keyed uh, on the same level. So ultimately, that that the sort of core, the hub of that model is the the macro. That's the the KPIs that apply to every single studio and function. And then once they extend that and enrich it, they're able to get into their own first-time user experience funnels or their own uh, game economy balancing. Um, but all of it joins together extremely nicely and is built on the same sort of kernel of truth. Okay. Okay. So, so what's what's the, what's the database you use with this? Is it is it kind of? I think you mentioned. I've heard you mention Exasol in the past and BigQuery and so on. What, what do you power it all really with at the database level? So, um, over the last uh, eighteen months, uh, it's been chiefly powered by Exasol. 
um, uh, where there's a, been a little bit of Impala thrown in for good measure and various smaller MySQL databases for more isolated use cases. Um, but uh, we're in the process of um, uh, migrating uh, the backbone of our data warehouse to BigQuery. So that will replace Exasol and Impala. So what's the reason behind that then? Why, why would you, I mean, because BigQuery's got its pros and cons. I was kind of curious, why, why, why that choice? Um, a variety of things, really. But on the most fundamental level, uh, with our uh, mixed data warehouse approach, um, you've, the, the decision anyone working with data has to make at King uh, until now is, uh, do I use the Hadoop ecosystem for um, you know, the full rich history of, uh, of uh, any aggregate or any um, event level data? Um, and this is a sort of multi-petabyte scale. Or do you use Exasol for super fast analytics across a smaller recent subset um, of that data? And that's, um, that's okay to a point. And, and we were able to make giant strides through separating those two things um, over the, the, the period of time I've been there. But with tools like BigQuery now, we're essentially saying, okay, we no need to have to make uh, choices about which SQL engine we're using. We no longer have to choose between speed and history. Um, we can get uh, a, an optimum balance of the two. Um, and that's been, I think, the biggest driver. On the, on the, on the side, um, there's obviously the overhead of running your own on-prem uh, data warehouse infrastructure it's it's expensive um it's extremely time consuming um and we have some enormously talented engineers who uh, can can do uh, far more than keep the lights on on that infrastructure um so they they have a, a big opportunity and we have a big opportunity to get far more out of them uh, at king through when you take a lot of that overhead away and can focus it on what's uh, more of a competitive differentiator than just your ability to power mm. on on prem okay do you use things like cloud dataflow and, and the rest of the, the google stack as well for your pipeline or is it just bigquery um principally it's bigquery but dataflow is definitely a uh, an increasing part of the picture but it's relatively early days and so we're still experimenting with what the uh, the optimum uh, stack looks like okay what's the response time been like on bigquery i mean i, I get one of the, again one of the things that surprised me about coming from say the world of oracle i was in was 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 how how easy it was to work with say bigquery the amount of you know the fact it's almost like no ops it's just there and it works but you know you still do hit issues where you know joining large tables are going to be slow how have you found the response time to be on, on bigquery compared to say exasol really uh, I think there's a few ways of looking at it. I mean, Exasol is extremely quick. I mean, for those who don't know it, it's you know, Columna in memory. Um, it's it, it, for when you when you have a well constructed data model and you point looker at it, you, know, you can expect you know, sub five second results, often sub one second results for uh, you know, with, with some of your analytic workloads. Um, you, you do pay a bit of a penalty with BigQuery. There's, there's a few seconds overhead on any query. Um, but uh, once you start to have much larger data sets, um, uh, we certainly see performance that is at least comparable with Impala, which you know, many of our downstream data warehouses like data scientists are more than happy with that when they're, when they're querying you know, several terabytes of data. That, that said, as you mentioned, there's uh, thinking about joins is is a key thing, and so we're you know as we 
we've taken the approach that the migration will will literally lift and shift uh, as is our data warehouse but in, we've got a parallel track of work of starting to think what um you know what that really should look like in a big query world once that migration phase is over experimenting with the you know those nested uh, nested rows and so on that are quite a differentiator of the products and from the early experience we have those are quite mind-blowing in their in terms yeah. of their possibilities okay 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 so so i guess the other thing i mean the other thing about look at that's interesting is that is the lookup is the semantic model the lookml model and, and certainly coming from uh, i suppose some of the more some of the more kind of desktop tools that have been popular recently like tableau and so on that don't have those you know you can see the value of them really um but i mean how have you found that the value of that has been at king i mean putting the idea the idea of having a business model of what you do and that being something that can be extended and 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 kind of all that how have you found that really yeah i think that's the the really the secret source of the looker offering that that it's it's enormously powerful. I mean, we uh, in our legacy stack, we pushed as much business logic into the data warehouse as possible. It was mainly described through views, um, and that worked to a certain point. But um, you know, as as Daniel Mintz from Looker would say, it, 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 it's very hard to reuse that code, and it's very it's very easy to um, lose track of that you know, from a data provenance point of view. Um, Looker, that semantic layer as that various benefits but one of them is just is just the transparency factor um you know the fact that uh, a user who's sql literate for example can click on that sql tab and see what's actually been generated uh, to to the, what's actually been used to drive the results of the the, the visualization they're looking at um, and that really wraps up a huge amount of the overhead on more traditional bi teams i think how do i get back to that number is a question that we get asked an all, uh, a huge amount well less and less so these days we look at so on the one hand you've got the transparency and on the other as you say you've got that extending factor so we can we really control that semantic layer we can really describe in a clear reusable um and importantly sort of source controlled way um but that doesn't come at the cost of, uh, of agility. And so once people can start extending that, they can add their own business logic and that in, it, in turn is transparent. Okay, so, so you mentioned uh, about you know, metrics and so on earlier on. I mean, have you found the process of trying to get the idea of there being a single version of truth? I mean, if you, if you pick one of the key measures like engagement, for example, you know, is, has it been you that's had to kind of get that defined as a single definition or has the business done that? Or is it, na- is it just not natural you can get that to be um, to be kind of commonly understood across the whole business. How does that work in a gaming company like yours? Um, I think the, there's been a huge appetite at King to to get that right and uh, to speak a common language. So I, I, I certainly know from my own experience in the past where you you sort of have to uh, bang your head against a bit of a brick wall to get that work done. But at King, there's been um, there's always really been that culture of of making sure that we're converging on a on a similar understanding. I think. By contrast, what you tend to get into is then more nuanced uh, conversations around uh, some of the, the the more fundamental things about what you're measuring. So whilst uh, everyone will understand that, you know, engagement, for example, is usually looked at from the point of view of retention and churn, people will understand, you know, what second, seventh, thirtieth day retention, for example, means. What we tend to have deeper conversations about are uh, when is it better to measure devices and versus better to measure players 
um, and the, and and both from a technical point of view, measuring players can be extremely difficult because they could be playing across multiple devices. They may or may not Facebook connect, for example. So deduping at that level to, to understand a, a true sort of player lifetime value um, versus understanding, uh, for example, when you're um, buying in stores through uh, you know Google AdWords, for example, um, you are looking at that more from a sort of device-centric point of view because uh, you know you're you're you you're ultimately paying for the install on that device. Um, so yeah, it, those that's where we tend to get into the more nuanced discussions. But at, at the top level, um, it's uh, been one of the easier parts of the journey to to look at what the, the sort of core KPIs are, which means we've been able to focus on how we use the tooling to articulate that. Okay, so the users of, of Looker in, <clears throat> in King Games, I mean, you've obviously, I presume you've got people who are just consuming dashboards and so on there. I mean, but do you have people in who are in, or the users who actually would write Looker Mail themselves and do more complex analysis like that? How's that worked out for you? Um, yeah, there's there's sort of a spectrum. Um, as you say, on the one hand, there's a more passive consumer, maybe someone who doesn't even actually ever log into Looker. They're receiving something that's scheduled in, in Looker, you know, in their inbox every morning, and that's that's fine. Um, then there's probably a, a, a very substantial cohort of people who are using dashboards that have been built by other people for them, and they're you know they're just filtering and occasionally drilling into that little. Um, and then there's a, a, a fairly sizable cohort of people, I would say, who um, go you know think about things from the explore onwards rather than from the dashboard back, uh, if that makes sense. So they they have their explores they go to every day, and they're happy to build up their own. Um, dashboards, their own schedules, um, and uh, really understand the power of that ecosystem. Um, and then there's a, a smaller cohort of people who are, are writing LookML. So we still have a semi-centralized data function um, at King. So uh, we have both core teams that define, you know, uh, that that core, you know, macro level KPI model. Um, then we have semi-centralized teams who specialize in verticals. So a team that, that deals with uh, marketing and ads, for example, uh, versus a team that deals with CRM. And then uh, further beyond that, we have the, the game studios themselves who have their own data scientists and increasingly their own data engineers as well. And so they're both extending those core models and they're building their own LookML models from scratch. So we really have a, 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 a we have many of everything i would say from a from a king perspective so you really get to see all sides of the product um and its strengths and weaknesses okay okay so so again when one of the things that i found different about going to uh, a tech startup it was was the, the the role of analysts there a lot of we had, we had analysts in the company i'm working at now where they wrote things in sql and didn't use bi tools and and that surprised me in that, you know, I used to write SQL years ago, but generally we'd use tools like ClickView now. But actually, you know, the ability to kind of handcraft queries yourself um, and, and construct them in, in a way that follows this kind of, I suppose, the the event model and, and what people are doing and so on. I can see why that they did that. And, I, and one of the things I was expecting was that they would perhaps graduate from writing SQL to writing LookML instead. So an analyst would write LookML and write and would write queries against the model that way at a level of, of abstraction higher than SQL. But it never really kind of happened, really. Did you find that happened at King, or did did did, did people who wrote SQL carried on writing SQL and, and the LookML was more your team, really? 
Um, no, we, I, I definitely recognize that. Um, there, there, there are some people who we've not been able to take on the, quite the same journey, but increasingly they're in a minority. Um, and I think that the trade-off uh, and the message from, from, from us around Looker and why we thought it was so important that people made the most um, of the platform was, was really around uh, the fact that, particularly in the game studios, and it was ultimately a, we were thinking about the studios most rather than thinking about centralized functions when we, when we invested in Looker. Um, you know, one of the recurrent criticisms, and, I, and I'm, I'm pretty sure King's not unique in this respect, is employing data scientists with, the, you know, PhDs in machine learning um, and then being the de facto data literate person in that team who's then tasked with coming up with fairly basic KPI reporting in some form or another. So the, the, the trade off to them was to say, look, you know, you're probably never going to be able to shake that element of your role off entirely. But what you can do through Looker with this abstraction is to reduce the amount of time it takes you to uh, to replicate and iterate those those more mundane ta- KPI tasks. Um, and so the people who sort of grasp the nettle there have really then gone on to realize the broader benefit of, of abstracting their SQL work. Uh, but that had to be the, the sort of sales pitch, if you like, had to be more around what they found frustrating in their day-to-day role that the, the looker was going to help. Um, but yeah, there are definitely some now who... Um, who who start from a looker first mentality, which is really nice. It, the utopia for me is, as you say, that point where everybody thinks look looker first, and then really only sort of dives in uh, when when it's something that there's there is no point in abstracting. You you could truly hand on heart say that it was something that could not, it would not be done again or was a, a truly disposable task. And we've not quite got to that point, mm. but the the momentum is in a positive direction. Okay, so you mentioned source control earlier. I mean, how, how important was it for you that, for example, Looker connects to GitHub and it and it follows that, I suppose, software development uh, best practices, you know, that people do these days? I mean, was that an important thing for you? Massively so. We tried various attempts over the years to get our, our ClickView stack to, to sort of conform to those expectations, yes, especially... Um, when you accompany uh, IPOs, for example, the, the, that sort of thing becomes, you know, auditability becomes extremely important. And, and we came up with some, some nice solutions to that, which uh, everybody was very happy with. But it, it was, you know, we, it, it, it was not a natural thing to do, if you see what I mean, in the context of that ecosystem. Um, so the fact that that's just an innate part of the product in Looko is a, a big differentiator. And I think also when you're, when you're dealing with that broad spectrum of, you know, there's the, the passive business user, they don't really care about that. But when you're dealing with a business with so many data scientists and so many technically savvy people, um, they really uh, are quite happy, in my experience, to make sort of face value judgments about uh, how 21st century a tool is, for example. Uh, and so that that's that's one of the features that we to any technical audience that we we make a big point of emphasizing first and foremost you know this is this fits in with your natural data engineering workflows there is no art uh, we 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 followed some classic software engineering practice through to a point and then the bi tools take over it's it's really you know a, a seamless ecosystem and the, again the sort of transparency of uh, that comes with that is is crucial 
Yeah, I think that that kind of cultural fit is important, isn't it? The fact that the fact that they feel comfortable using it, it's using APIs, it's using sort of GitHub and all that kind of stuff. It means the tool gets more just ready acceptance. But then, I mean, you, you mentioned there a data engineers, and 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 so you, you must have obviously quite a kind of a team of people behind you that are building this out and, and supporting it. What what's the setup really in terms of data engineers and and the supporting staff that support what you're doing with kind of Looker at the moment? Um. Actually, the Looker element is one of the the lightest pieces from um, from a centralized function that that you know I'm director of, um, and that again has been one of the big advantages. Really, is we've been able to, where traditionally we have these sort of big centralized teams, we've been able to devolve so much out of it to the business that um, those engineers can focus on other things. So our actual the team that that led the Looker rollout at King and took it from, you know, zero users to, I think, 700, 700 odd at the latest count. Um, that was two people, my, myself uh, in my previous uh, role at King um, as BI lead uh, and one of my teammates. And we were able to drive that journey of, of user engagement and onboarding um, and delegate out the model development to the studios themselves, but providing that sort of those core foundations. You know, the the the, the interesting thing for me around this is that the core model that I wrote in the uh, with my colleague in the sort of summer 2016 has hardly changed at all um, in that, that two years now. Um, and yet there are hundreds almost of uh, of satellite models that consume that, those foundations and go off in all sorts of di- different uh, directions um, and still do so to this day. So that's, it's it's a quite a quantum leap in terms of how we thought about how to structure things. And there are lots of teams building semi-centralized models as well. Um, but I guess, uh, yeah, again, they, they, they've, they find the same thing that actually the upfront work is fairly light and then it's where you take it to the next stage that um, is then cooperative, if you like, with the downstream teams. How did you, how did you find understanding how Looker works at the start? I mean, I, I, when, I, when I first encountered it and we had this concept of explores and views and, and, and all that kind of stuff, you know, it didn't seem that having come from a world of, of, of subject areas and dimensions and measures and so on, it, it kind of seemed a bit odd. And the wording that they use as well with kind of explores and looks and so on is a bit kind of different. How did you, how did you find learning that? And how did you make that kind of mental jump to how the, the correct way of doing Looker modeling and the correct way to structure things really um yeah it's, it's definitely you know it has its own vernacular doesn't it and um it takes a little while to get your head around that I, I, you know I, I do find the the view term to be confusing um you know is it a database view is it a table is it you know it, it, it's it's strange that they sort of used a reserved word if you like uh for one of the key layers of the product but that's a fairly minor <laughs> minor complaint compared to what it can do um uh, yeah, I, I, I mean, we had a very intensive um, sort of offsite with a couple of very talented Looker engineers, three of us at King, two talented uh, Looker engineers, and we locked ourselves in a, in a meeting room for five days um, and didn't leave until we'd, we'd built uh, a couple of um, core use cases that we could then use to lead our pilot project. So by the end of that five-day period, you know, we we thought about very little other than Looker over that time, and so it very much got up to speed with it. But I think what, what 
I think that said, it, it turned out to be a fairly quick process because we realized increasingly as we went through the journey that the way that the product had been thought about very much mirrored how we'd been trying to do things with other tooling anyway and try to bend it to, 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 to become more lookalike. Uh, we just didn't know that there was something out there that was already doing these things until, until that point. Okay, so so do you tend to sort of join everything together, all your views together in one explore, or do you separate them out? How do you? I mean, if you're if you're guiding your team members into how to design a good and efficient um, looker explore, yeah, what what are your kind of I suppose guidelines that you found have worked really in the in, in the past? Um, there's a there's a few key things. Um, there's uh, there are certain topics where um, upfront materializing and aggregating is not prohibitive certain th- certain you know patterns that never really change and so we we always try to point out the flexibility to say that this just because you can join everything at the very finest grain and and it can roll up and aggregate and and, and smartly understand the joining it you know at query time doesn't mean you should so we try to encourage people to think about what can be materialized up front to help performance um, and we try to think, get people to understand the possibilities of caching as well, the data group element to think about, you know, what, what really is a brand new query in a given day versus something that, you know, you, you know that someone's only going to answer that question once in a day or a hundred people answer that same question. Uh, so, you know, do it once and heat that cache and then uh, go from there. So there's, there's definitely, once you get into the weeds of things that people have become really comfortable with the tool, you can, you can really take them through a quite sophisticated architectural journey, I would say. But up, but up front, you know, what we're trying to, you know, expose through the tool is, is that, um, you know, our events are keyed at this, on, on this unique key. Um, and you can, through this model, uh, if you're, you can join in as many of those events as you like, um, and then you just join them to the core explore. So there, there is a single explore that people are joining to first and foremost. Then once they're comfortable with that, then they start to sort of realize the benefit of, okay, actually now I can start to create smaller, uh, more niche explores that maybe deal with a single uh, A-B test. For example, that doesn't need to traverse that core layer. Interesting, interesting. I mean, so, so I mean, you said earlier your model hasn't changed much, and certainly Looker itself is, is, is I think, has stayed fairly constant. The core idea is still the same, the product is still the same, and so on. But is there anything that you, is there anything you'd like to see added to it, or you've seen maybe mentioned in a roadmap talk or something that you know, a new feature maybe in Looker that would be particularly interesting or useful to a company like King, for example? Um, there are definitely a couple of big ones that uh, I think would, would be quite changing. I mean, one is a feature that's already in in beta that um, when it's you know re- really available, production standard, I think will be a, have a big uptake at businesses like King, and that's the ability to the, the merge feature. Yeah, I thought you were so going to say that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that that really is a big. Uh, leap to plugging some of the the gaps that still remain from uh from the click view way of thinking about things um so that's that's super powerful um and then i think actually the things that concern me more and i think would be it would really take the product onto the next level is um content discoverability 
So, you know, the, the advantage of, of our Looker model, the Hub and Spoke model is, you know, literally any data-driven team in, in King can do anything with our Looker platform. They can consume from central models. They can explore dedicated models around subject areas. They can mix and match or they can produce their own. Um, and what that could lead to is a, an explosion of content and an explosion of explores. And and so, you know, there's... The, there are actually relatively few users, uh, King and I guess an awful lot of other business, who are generally interested in all, everything that's on there. Um, so b- b- how the, t- the front-end element of the tool, I think, could definitely uh, move forward in terms of guiding people towards the things that are really relevant to them. Mm. Yeah, I think yeah. I think at the at the at the conference we both were at last year, they talked about having something that would uh, where we kind of highlight which column, which which fields were used with the field you've selected, for example. So if you have got a big model, you know, you might pick one, and it would say well, these these fields are also commonly used with that. I mean, that again might help to guide people, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, exactly. That sort of intelligent guide guidance can happen on on really any any level of the the product is it you know which are the dashboards that my peers use that so i don't need to reinvent the wheel versus as you say what are the common combinations of questions uh dimensions and measures that are asked of this particular explore um you can really take it down to the to the finest point and then i suppose you could you could in theoretically take it a step further and take that to the look ml layer and when someone's potentially building something you know have a level of intelligence that we're able to say you know there's a possibility something like this already exists but um that's uh that's even further down the line i'm sure <laughs> okay do you ever use things like data actions and, and, the, and I suppose the action hub now as well is that is that is any links back to your main applications or is it all pretty much standalone really um it's, it's, a, it's a small amount of utilization of that sort of thing uh but there's a big appetite for making more of it um, and I certainly think you know one of the biggest users of our uh, looker platform is the uh, our performance marketing team who do an awful lot of work with tools like AdWords so um, they're they're very hungry to to get that sort of stuff up and running and we're certainly uh, utilizing the ability to schedule things to webhooks and so on an, an awful lot, So, uh, which is a, more or less a proxy for those same data actions, isn't it? Okay, okay. So so in your mind then, what, what's the next thing? What's the, you know, you, I guess you've thought about this quite a bit, but what's the next unsolved problem in this area really? What is analytics not yet delivering on its promise for or where there's an opportunity that you're, you can think of? Um. Well, it actually sort of taps into something you were saying earlier about those the, those users who who don't necessarily think look ML first and about that abstraction. Taking that a step further, I think one of the things that really strikes me with a lot of contemporary data-driven businesses is uh, increasingly, you know, data science and machine learning and so on is, is a part of the product itself. Um, and uh, and then you know increasingly business expect to be to have access to that sort of uh, talent, you know, data science talent and that sort of uh, leverage. Um, and then you've still got the more traditional BI use cases. And I think uh, the point at which they all intersect uh, is the is the bit that I, I think that, that that's what's yet to come. Um, you know, to, to give you a sort of practical example of what I mean by that, um, if you have uh, a uh, sort of a predictive model, there's obviously an amount of data that goes into that predictive model, um, and there's some data that comes out. Um, and actually, that's that same uh, look at conference we were at in San Francisco together. There, there, there was a great talk about this very point is positioning Looker, for example, within that workflow of, well, why not? 
enable the business user uh, to explore the data that went in and then explore the data went, that, that came out um, and, and then make that part of a, a, a rich ecosystem that enables you to loop and iterate um, and uh, compare and contrast. And so I, I think that the tooling and the mentality is there. Um, I've just not seen firsthand yet anyone sort of really put their money where their mouth is and make that leap to saying, okay, let's let's make this all one and the same ecosystem. Everything's explorable. Everything is uh, able to be um, to bring, say, you know, the, the machine learning workflows within the same okay. uh, within within a, within a single step. Okay, it's interesting. So, what for you then? What, what's the future for you, really? You know, what 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 would you like to be doing in the future, and you know, where we might, where might we see you speak or whatever in the future, and so on? Uh, so, my 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 time at King is actually sadly coming to an end. It's been a, an amazing journey, and but I'll soon be moving on to taking on a new role as head of BI at a, uh, a fintech company called GoCardless. Um, so. Um, sad to be leaving king but super excited about what what lies ahead and it's uh i guess uh for me there's the there's always the thing in any uh technical role maybe any role for that matter but it, you know if i were to go back in time five years uh and 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 do it all again knowing what i know now what would i do differently and um i guess this uh this next role is an opportunity to find out yeah, fantastic. Well, it sounds like you've done a pretty good job at, at King, actually. So, uh, I mean, you know, you've obviously left a good, uh, a good sort of a legacy there. And, and uh, I was really keen to understand how you've made such success of it. And I suppose how you've used Looker as well, because it's, um, you know, it's got a lot of promise. I think it's, it's, it's a new thing to learn. But I think it's the idea of bringing, a, 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 I suppose, a, a tool into a BI tool into startups or in tech companies where we can start to, you know, bring in some of his ideas about semantic models, single version of the truth, but in a way that aligns with the corporate culture and the way people do now, do things now. And he's really good. And, uh, you know, you've done really well there. So it's uh, good luck with the new job. Thank you. I hope that works out well. And uh, it's been great to speak to you. And, uh, yeah, have a good evening. And uh, thanks very much for coming on the show. Thanks very much, Mark. Take care.